This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Clyde Snow and Sessions, based in Salt Lake City with offices in Oregon and California. For over 65 years, Clyde Snow has represented clients throughout the West. Clyde Snow, serious about solutions. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect, a podcast putting water into context. I'm Emily Lewis, your host, and I'm a water attorney here in Salt Lake City, Utah, practicing creative solutions to today's and tomorrow's water problems. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to the 25th, very exciting, uh, episode of Ripple Effect. Um, Today I have with me Fred Donaldson, and Fred Donaldson is an Assistant Attorney General in the AG's Natural Resources Division, and he represents the Utah Division of Forestry, Fire, and State Lands. And the reason that I wanted to have Fred on the call today is because Fred has firsthand experience with the issue of what we call navigability for title, where essentially we determine who owns the bed of riverways and waterways um, in a state. And I think that that is a a fun issue that we've had some traction on in the last couple of years at the Supreme Court and elsewhere. And I just kind of wanted to give Fred an opportunity to kind of have a discussion about what he does and what the agency does and kind of talk a little bit about that particular determination. So Fred, if you would, could you please give the listener just a little bit of your background and kind of how you ended up with um, Forestry Fire State Lands today? Sure. Thanks, Emily, and thanks for having me on today. I grew up here in Utah and attended uh, college also here where I earned a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in geography. And after uh, those degrees, I went to law school at the University of Utah. Uh, There at the University of Utah, I was able to earn a certificate in natural resources and environmental law from the Stegner Center, and I was uh, uh, awarded a couple of fellowships that allowed me to get my foot in the door, so to speak, with the Attorney General's office in the Natural Resources Division. And um, a vacancy happened to open up uh, here in the division, and I applied and was was given that job. Mm -hmm. And so I've been here with the Attorney General's office since 2006, but I've been here as an attorney since 2008. Yeah, and for, in full disclosure, Fred and I uh, worked at the AG's office together for several years and what I consider to be some just really fun and formative years, you know, early in my career. And I, I love the AG's office. I think it's a great place to work. And honestly, some of the most interesting questions in the state come across the attorneys in the Natural Resources uh, Division's desk. So I'm a fan. <laughs> I agree with that. And, and it was fun to work with Emily. And occasionally our practices still cross paths and I'll give her a call or she'll give me a call and and we'll talk about issues that come up. Yeah, I like that. It's a very congenial um, bar here in Utah. So with that, Fred, would you tell us a little bit about kind of what your client agency does? So um, the part of the client agency that is relevant to what you're, uh, what we're talking about today um, manages the beds of the navigable uh, waters here in the state of Utah, those waters and lands that were acquired by virtue of the equal footing doctrine. And as your listeners may know, 
and we, we can get more into this later, but as of statehood, under the equal footing doctrine, the states receive title to the beds of navigable streams and lakes within their boundaries. And, and we're on an equal footing with whom? Um. So, so yeah, it's equal footing with the 13 original colonies and the original states in the United States. And so the, the early Supreme Court precedent established that subsequent states acquired the same property rights and properties that those original 13 states acquired. And that's why it's called the equal footing doctrine is each subsequent state is on equal footing with the original 13 states. And the way that the original 13 states developed is that they own the beds of their, of basically their navigable waterways. So, you know, Mississippi owned the bed of the Mississippi. Um, I'm trying to think of some other large rivers in the East Coast. Um, some other large river, the Hudson. <laughs> yeah, the Hudson is a good example, the Chesapeake. Mm -hmm. um, you know, those are the East River in New York. You know, those are, would be considered state-owned riverbeds. Okay. And I want to talk about how we make that determination here in just a minute. But before we get there, um, you know, why, why is it that we want the, why would, why would a state want title to such beds? Well, so it's not necessarily that the state wants title. Um, it's that the state receives title by virtue of its sovereignty. So sometimes um, these lands are called submerged lands because typically they are submerged by water, but another term for these lands is sovereign lands. And these are the lands that um, come by virtue of, of sovereignty of the state. And so the reason the state um, owns these lands is so that they can keep these lands open for public use and public access. And there is what is called the public trust doctrine that attaches to these equal footing doctrine lands. And so that requires that things like navigation and um, wildlife habitat and other things are protected and elevated over other, other uses. So it's kind of like these sovereign lands uh, kind of reflect the, uh, we so I teach water law here at, at the University of Utah at the SJ Quinney College of Law. And we talk a lot about how water is a unique um, resource in the sense that there's kind of like a, a publicness imbued in the resource in of itself. And that, you know, under the law, we don't own the corpus of the water. We own the right to use the public's water. And so sovereign lands are similar in the sense that you know, this is a, a public resource imbued with like public, um, you know, priorities. Um, and so, you know, basically the, the U.S. sovereign state lands are basically tasked with managing that on behalf of the public, correct? Correct. This is, the, there is a, an actual trust and there are trust beneficiaries and the lands would be considered the corpus of the trust and that are managed by the trustees for the benefit of of the trust beneficiaries, which is the public. Yeah, so the state's managing these for the benefit of the public. Okay. Correct. So then Fred, how do we determine whether or not the state has a claim of ownership to these submerged or sovereign lands? So that's a good question. And the United States Supreme Court has given um, guidance on equal footing determinations in a case called the Daniel Ball case. And it is a case where there was, where, this, where the U United States Supreme Court 
developed or articulated the test for navigability. And that is that lands are considered uh, or water bodies are considered navigable if they are used or susceptible for use for commerce at the time of statehood. And at the time of statehood is important too, like that. Because what year did Utah become a state? 1896. Okay, cool. So Utah became a state in 1896. And so the Daniel Ball test is what is used to determine whether uh, lands fall within um, the ownership of the state or whether they are federal land that could be then conveyed by patent or, um, or sold or retained by the federal government. And so can you give us an example of like a navigable body of water here in the state of Utah that um, meets the Daniel Ball test? Yeah, so that's a good good uh, segue too. And we have litigated the ownership of several bodies of water here in the state. And the ones that we have litigated are the Great Salt Lake and Utah Lake and parts of the Green and Colorado Rivers. And, and, so, part of, and parts of the Weaver? Any part of the Weaver? Well, yeah, there's a, well, I, that was an Easter egg. <laughs> yeah, there is, there is a question of ownership uh, uh, related to the Weber River, and it wasn't per se litigated for title, but it was litigated for access uh, under a statutory test for access, and the, the test for access that was used is the same as the test for title. So it was all but litigated for title in one very narrow, small seg- segment of the Weber River. Right. And so let, I want to hold that that issue of, of navigability for title and navigability for access for just a second, because um, I think that that's, I, you know, I do want to talk a little bit about that today because, you know, I think there's a big issue of like fishing access interests here in the state of Utah. And, and you know, there's a, a great desire to use our waterways for public recreation. Um, so I do kind of want to talk to you about that a little bit, but before we do that, can you tell us like, um, like, for example, like how did the great, how was the Great Salt Lake determined to be navigable? Well, let me just go back a minute. So I, I indicated the ones where there was actual litigation over navigability, but in addition to those water bodies, the state does claim other water bodies as navigable. And those include the Jordan River, and Bear Lake and parts of the the Bear River as well. Okay. So kind of like all the major waterways you guys have a claim to. I mean, if yeah, you have- so we like to say it's 1.5 million acres and 2200 miles of shoreline. Oh. That's just those are rough estimates. Mm-hmm. And then um cuz I do want to talk about the Great Salt Lake a little bit in specific cuz I think that there's so many interests so many yeah, fascinating we'll topics. That question. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, I'll answer your question that you asked previously about Great Salt Lake. There was litigation with the federal government and the evidence that was used to show navigability was the state was able to present um, journals that were written by early settlers in Utah that showed that they transported cattle to Antelope Island uh, across the bed of Great Salt Lake through bar- on barges. And so that is what was used to determine that the Great Salt Lake was navigable for title. So kind of basically like the commerce element got us to the yes. point of it being navigable for title. Yeah, and so the commercial the commercial activity it, it uh, it's often um, 
segmented further into trade and travel. And so if there's trade or travel, then that kind of meets the test for commercial activity. Yeah, and this, isn't there another kind of common element here in Utah where it's, um, if there's been uh, like basically like log log drives, you know, wasn't that another kind of common element that was used to prove navigability for title? Yeah, and that kind of relates to the commerce part too, the trade part, because mm-hmm. those logs were being driven for use to be brought to market um, and to be used for the construction of railroads. And so it those log drives, that's what on the Weber River, that's what was uh, found to be sufficient to show that that part of the Weber River kind of met the Daniel Ball test for navigability. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So we have this Daniel Ball navigability test that kind of relies on looking at, um, you know, whatever the commerce or trade was at the time of statehood to determine whether or not there's a claim to title to these kind of submerged lands. Um, Could you talk a little bit about what you do once a state has asserted its ownership claim for these lands? Like more specifically, I'm thinking about really kind of like what Forestry Fire does um, in terms of the Great Salt Lake, because it's such a huge ecosystem. And I think it's a little bit of a misunderstood ecosystem. And the fact that state has ownership of it really enables the state to do some pretty interesting activities. And so um, I thought that would be interesting for kind of like the listeners to kind of unpack a little bit about kind of what happens out there. Yeah. Yeah, the Great Salt Lake is a very unique resource. Um, One of the things that makes it unique is, well, let me just go a little bit into the history. It's a remnant of Lake Bonneville, which was a prehistoric lake and that has, you know, since disappeared, but left some remnants, including Great Salt Lake, a little lake near Brigham City called Box Elder Lake, and another saline lake, terminal lake called Severe Lake. And so these, these remnants are, are left over from Lake Bonneville, the largest being Great Salt Lake, and it also has the most, most water. And as the, the name of the lake suggests, it's a saline lake, and so it has a lot of salt in the water that's suspended. And it has a bed uh, that is primarily salt as well. And so What that has given the state the opportunity to do is people have wanted to, they come and they can seek to develop the the salt resources or other resources that are found in the minerals at Great Salt Lake. And so we have several companies, including Compass Minerals, which is a large producer producer of potash. And we have uh, US Magnesium, we have Morton Salt, and we have Cargill, and we have all of these other entities that are extracting salts and and minerals from Great Salt Lake. And how and they, do they do how do they do that, Fred? How do they actually extract those salts? So they they receive a mineral lease uh, or a royal and a royalty agreement from the state. And then typically what they're doing is they're evaporating out the water and and then harvesting the salts and cleaning them and uh, processing them to remove impurities and to get the chemicals and the other things that they want out of the salts. So when people are flying over Salt Lake, you know, you may are flying in at the Salt Lake International Airport, you know, oftentimes you, you can actually see these, these facilities from the air, you know, there are these various ponds of, you know, various layer colors of blue or red or, you know, um, I don't know, I always find it fascinating when you're flying in at Salt Lake to see how much of 
in all truth, a working ecosystem, the Great Salt Lake is. I mean, how, how big are some of those facilities? So there, I mean, there are tens of thousands of acres, correct? Tens of thousands of acres, absolutely. I think, I think uh, there's probably 18, 20,000 acres on the, in, the, um, in what we call the Bear River Bay area. And then there's, um, there's other leases on the other side in the north arm of the lake. The lake is divided into two arms, a north arm and a south arm. And the north arm is much more saline than the south arm. And um, so there's more facilities there on, in the north arm, but there's also facilities on the in the south arm on the south end of the lake. Um, that's where you would find like US magnesium and, and some of these other uh, mineral producers. And I just love this tidbit. And so I'm going to ask you, and I'm blatantly just ask you about it. Um, how do the, those producers on the north, on the west side of the north arm, move their product over to their processing facilities on the east side of the north arm? That is a fascinating um, answer to that question. And the answer is there's a, a canal, if you want to call it that. There's a, a, a structure called the Barron's Trench. And it was invented to transport brine using pressure differences. And so what it does is it flows on the bed of the Great Salt Lake, essentially. And it basically creates a current that moves the thicker brines from the west side of the lake towards the east side of the lake. And it's fascinating what it, what it does. Yeah, because isn't it so corrosive out there that, that, that there's not an ability to pipe it, pipe it? And so this was kind of using gravity and physics and density and viscosity kind of to the advantage of the producers. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly right. There used to be a trestle that ran across the lake and it corroded over time. But a lot of the remnants of the trestle were basically reclaimed and then are now sold um, as timbers for construction and people really like the look of these uh, weathered timbers and wood from the yeah. trestle. Yeah, I, the trestle wood is beautiful. So Fred, when when that brine comes from the west side of the lake to the east side of the lake, what color is it? <laughs> well, the water in the north arm is, I think it's red, essentially, um, pink and red. And I don't know what the color is that comes out of the Barron's Trench, but I assume it's the, it's that same that same water. And it's because there is a an algae or a bacteria that causes that color change in the North Arm. Yeah, I asked that because I, I just I just have this visual memory. We did a field visit out there a couple of years ago, looking at the, the causeway that goes across the lake, and we looked at the outflow for the Barrens Trench, and it was like this frothy pink river of of something, and it reminded me of Ghostbusters too, with the river of slime underneath the subway subway system in New York City. <laughs> And I was like, pretty much this is our own version of the New York City slime subway story. <laughs> it is It is incredible having been out there on the causeway and on the trestle to just just see the two different arms and the the color difference is 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 dramatic. I mean, it's it's very different mm -hmm. between those two two arms of the lake. 
And so kind of getting back to like the initial component or the initial kind of thrust of this discussion, the reason that we can have that industry though is because the state claims ownership of that, um, ownership of the bed of the Great Salt Lake. And so how do you go about, do you, how do you go about like um, actually issuing those leases? Do you guys do plans or like what's the, what's the mechanism for, you know, harvesting that public value out of the, the bed of the Great Salt Lake? So typically, and this is with all of our lands, um, we are wanting to manage them um, such that for the public benefit of the public. And one of the, the things the public really cares about is recreation and, and also wildlife habitat and navigation. And so we're managing these lands to provide generally for public use and, and public access. And also though, Occasionally, and this happens on nearly every uh, body of water, but somebody will come to us and they'll say, hey, I want to do this or I want to do that on your lands. For example, I want to put a, a bridge across the Jordan River and, or I want to develop minerals from Great Salt Lake. And so what we have in place is a permitting system and a leasing system that allows those types of things to occur as people come in and they apply for and receive uh, either a permit or a lease or an easement as you know, depending on what is being sought. Mm -hmm. And so outside, um, you know, you mentioned like bridges over the Jordan, like what are some, what are the requests you get for like the Green River? I mean, what, what kind of, what are the gambit of activities do you have requests for on these, on your, on these sovereign properties? So we do uh, on the Green River, a lot of what happens on the Green River and the Colorado is guided river tours. And so we are giving permits to commercial river guides to conduct trips on those rivers. Another activity that occurs down there is weed control, invasive weeds uh, such as tamarisk and um, phragmites. We're giving permits for people to go and, and do work to abate those uh, invasive weeds and to get rid of them. I didn't realize the Forestry Fire Site Lands did uh, guided river trip permits, but it makes sense. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hmm. So do you also have like a oversight for any kind of like safety precautions or do you just basically give them like the use of the use of state property? So that's, um, so when we're giving permits, we're doing it, we're, we're not a regulator, we're doing it under the proprietary, the property owner power of the state. And so we're, we do you know, have some standards and things, standard terms and provisions in our permits that uh, encourage those types of safety activities. In addition, we require them to take all the liability away from us because we don't really wanna have any liability associated with those activities. And we also require them to have insurance. And so that's how we try to protect the public is by making sure that if they come and get a permit from us, that they're insured and that they're they're willing to take the liability associated with with that activity, whatever that's it awesome. is. So on that front, it's a, that's a great segue, Fred. I, I do want to pick up a little bit on a comment that you made earlier in our discussion about navigability for title, which you know you very clearly stated is the Daniel Ball test, and you know basically gives the state the opportunity to you know, regulate and, um, you know, use these uh, submerged sovereign lands for state benefit. 
Could you tease out a little bit about the difference between navigability for title and navigability for access that we talked about um, just briefly along the Weber and kind of what the distinction between those two are? So that's a good question. The, the answer is kind of um, nuanced, but um, the state is the owner of all the beds of navigable waters. Um, regardless of whether or not they have yet been adjudicated. And, and, you, and by adjudicated, you mean determined navigable and title through a court, right? Correct. Okay. Judicially determined. And so if, if a water body was navigable at statehood, by operation of law, title is already vested in the state, even though it's not necessarily judicially recognized yet. So kind of like and a so, common law recognition. Right. And so, or, or another way to put it is by operation of law, mm -hmm. you know, and so a lot of times what, what's happening when we're litigating these matters is we're getting our title recognized. Um, and, and uh, that's what's happened again on Utah Lake and Great Salt Lake and parts of the Green and Colorado rivers. Um, and with the Weber River, what, what ended up happening was after a decision called the Konatzer case, um, there was, uh, the, the legislature tried to respond to the Konatzer case uh, that the Utah Supreme Court had decided. And they put into place a stream access law that said certain streams have access for fishing. Um, and one of the tests was if they are navigable. Um, and it was the same standard that is used for the title test. Uh, and so, but it's a statutory provision for access, for fishing, fishing access. And so that is what was used on the Weber River was the statutory uh, provision related to stream access. Um, it wasn't a quiet title uh, case because mm -hmm we weren't being sued by the landowners to quiet title and we weren't suing the landowner to quiet title in the Weber River. Instead, it was an access case. We were being sued to provide for access or allow access along the, uh, along the river. Yeah, and so that's basically the question of, you know, if you have, I mean, wasn't the question primarily like for fishermen, you know, if if we own the water, the public's water, and we own that water over, you know, any lands that are navigable, um, and whether or not we've adjudicated that in, t in court or not, there's a question of like, how, what rights do the public have in that water? And so wasn't the question kind of primarily about like, where you can step and what you can do and if you're floating through private property like you know um what access is what access rights do you have as a fisherman um along those reaches well that that was primarily the access question in general is is, is that question is what access you know what does it mean to have access on on a stream um i would say the more controversial issue is the, the amount of access that is allowed on non-navigable streams because on navigable streams, um, generally the access is available for any recreational use, fishing, wading, swimming, floating, kayaking, canoeing on navigable streams. But on non-navigable streams, that's where the real question comes in 
is what, what access is available on non-navigable streams. And so mm -hmm. the question here though was uh, in the Weber River case that was litigated was in this particular area, is there the full access or is there just a limited access under the Konatzer easement? Okay. So basically it was, that was a question of um, was there access on a nav non-navigable stretch of river? Well, or is this navigable? Okay. That really was the question, but is it navigable for access? Not, not navigable for title, but navigable for access. Cause it's the same, it's the same analysis, just different results about the, regarding, depending on what the question you're asking. So in your case, is this navigable for title is, do we own it? Is if it's navigable for access is, can you bring your boat there essentially? Correct. Yeah, or wade there. Or wade um, there. Under the Konatzer case, you can float and touch incidentally, um, but some people want to cut that back even further or don't, some people are fine with people floating on rivers, but they don't want people to be able to wade and fly fish, for example, on a river. Mm -hmm. Kind of this property interest versus public interest are kind of like rearing, it's re rearing their heads. Correct. Yeah, great. So what percentage of your job as an attorney for the Division of Forestry, Fire, State Lands deals with these kind of sovereign lands issues? Like how regularly do they come up and kind of like, what do you, is it primarily access questions like this? Is it primarily like the leasing questions? Like how is, how is, how are the hours of your day kind of meted out for sovereign land questions? I would say that I'm dealing with sovereign land questions in one way or another every day, but it is only part of my job, but I would say it's, it's a, a big part of my job. And so I would say it's probably about, for me, it's probably about 60 to 70% of my job is spent on sovereign lands. And I would say the rest of it is spent on uh, fires that uh, I also do fire recovery cases. And so when someone starts a, a fire negligently, I'm going after them to recover costs for fire suppression activities. And I also work on forestry matters and consult with the division on forestry and fire matters generally. So. Um, I would say, though, that every day I'm reviewing permits, use permits, I'm looking at lease decisions, there's conflicts that come up, I'm talking about um, issues at Great Salt Lake or Bear Lake or Utah Lake or one of the rivers um, nearly every day. What kind of conflicts present themselves in terms of like sovereign land questions? Um, so. As you know, em Emily, when you were here, we were involved in litigation at Great Salt Lake over mineral leasing. And it's because environmental groups were objecting to a mineral lease expansion uh, from one of the mineral companies there. And so that took up a lot of time and energy to, to address those, those issues. And we were recently able to settle all of those matters and have those matters dismissed voluntarily from the, from the courts. Um, and it, it was kind of a, a victory for, for everyone um, because now there will be more process when minerals, when mineral leases occur, uh, depending on the size of the mineral lease, there's going to be additional process. And uh, it would really was kind of a win-win, but that, that litigation 
took a number of years and it went up to the Utah Supreme Court twice. And then it was finally decided and settled either last year or earlier this year. God, that was like a 10 year case. <laughs> yeah, it really was. I think it started in 2007. It was actually a, a 13 year case. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. And I'm assuming the Great Salt Lake, considering it has, it is such a unique ecosystem, presents kind of its own set of issues. And then, you know, the river questions are probably a little bit different than Great Salt Lake questions. Yeah, a lot of what we're doing on the rivers is boundary settlements. And so, and even on, on some of the lakes too, we're finishing up, um, there's litigation at Utah Lake uh, that has been in federal court for a number of years to uh, identify the boundaries between the sovereign land and the adjacent upland. And we're finishing up that litigation and we should be finished earlier, early next year or later this year. And then um, we're also doing boundary settlements on other rivers um, and other uh, water bodies such as Bear Lake. And is that essentially just like agreeing to a high water line? Is that yes. what the boundary is? Mm -hmm. It's the ordinary high water mark is what it's called and, and it can be identified. It's kind of a mixed question of law and fact and so it would need to be litigated typically unless the parties can basically come to a stipulated agreement as to where that line is, which is what happens in most of our cases is we just, we come, we negotiate with the opposing party and say, let's set it here at this elevation uh, or at this location and, uh, and let's just agree that this is the boundary. And then it gets surveyed and recorded. So that sounds kind of painstaking. <laughs> it is a little bit, it can be, especially with river boundaries because, and that's a, that's a whole other set of issues and challenges because rivers, as you know, are dynamic, they move. And so, and so do the boundaries. And so even if we were to set a river boundary, which we have done, if the river moves, our boundary moves with it. Oh, so you can have a legal description that's not accurate to the physical description of the of where the high water line is. Correct. And that so the, happens all the time, constantly. But, but the physical will remain, right? Or will govern, correct? Or is it the legal yes. description? Yes. No, okay. it's the physical. Hmm, that would be confusing. <laughs> I'm just thinking of because I think we had a matter on the Jordan that included this, correct? We were trying yeah. to figure out, yeah, we we're trying yeah, to figure out did. where the boundary was and like where the meander line was. And do we talk about accretion and do? do Accretion and I want to say yeah. dereliction, but that's not the right word. <laughs> Accretion and reliction, reliction. And erosion and yes. avulsion. Yeah. Yeah. The moving of the river. <laughs> yeah. Those, that's a set of it, really interesting issues because when a river moves through natural processes, again, the boundary moves with it and the, and the, the river moves and the boundaries move. But if a river moves through unnatural processes or through a sudden flood, for example, an evulsive event, then the boundary remains fixed. And so it, it does create a suite of uh, challenges and, and a set of challenges that people could, you know, people routinely come to the division and say, it looks like the, the river used to be over here, but now it's over here. So where's my boundary? And so that's something that we have to sometimes litigate, but more often we try to resolve it with them. 
Has climate change affected that? I mean, I'm just thinking about these kind of like huge storm events that we've been having in recent years that really honestly have the ability to reroute rivers. I mean, I'm thinking just a little bit about um, kind of uh, Spanish Fork and the fire we had two or three years ago that was followed by those terrible mudslides. I mean, that's a little bit geographically different because everything kind of feeds into a canyon bottom, but like has, have those storm events at all presented themselves as challenges for this, this boundary question? I would say more than the storm events, um, human activity generally has impacted these issues. You know, people want to prevent their land from eroding and so they'll armor rivers uh, on one side and it'll force the river to move more towards the other side and then the other side kind of does the same thing and then those those uh, forces have no place to go except for um, downstream you know and so then that impacts the downstream uh, even more and and the cycle just kind of perpetuates so I would say that I, I think certainly weather and climate have an impact on on this issue but I think more than that I would say human activity is really what has the, the most significant impact. Hmm. I can see that. And then the state's kind of left in the middle trying to figure out what land is theirs and what land is private. Yeah, and, and we do have some tools in our tool belt to help us with that. Uh, we can do exchanges, we can do boundary settlements, like I mentioned previously. We can do other things that, to try to resolve those kinds of issues. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that being a big issue. Um, especially as our development is kind of encroaching upon our natural environments more and more. Um, we run into this a lot in the canal, um, which is obviously not a natural water body, but um, just encroachment on canals, which raises its own, you know, bucket of issues. And so I, I can very much see some of these questions in my mind about what that would do for a natural ecosystem. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, Fred. Well, I kind of discussed some of the things that I wanted to talk about in terms of like my interest about you know, sovereign lands. Do you have anything that you want to add that we didn't really get a chance to, or like an interesting tidbit that you think the listeners would be interested in hearing about regarding sovereign lands? Because I'm always surprised at like kind of some of the funny anecdotes or requests that you guys get. It's just kind of like this little niche area of the law in a niche area of kind of like public resources that I don't think gets a lot of attention. And so I just kind of wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of highlight anything you thought was interesting or that we didn't get a chance to talk about. Well, one of the most interesting projects that has been proposed and kicked around over the last uh, few years or so is a group has approached the state and they want to uh, restore Utah Lake, but the way they want to clean up and restore Utah Lake is by constructing uh, islands in the lake, by first of all, dredging all the sediments from the bottom of the lake and then using those sediments constructing islands, similar to what has been done in Dubai on the, they call them the Palm Islands or the World Islands and they want to do that at Utah Lake, um, deepen the lake and clean it up and get rid of some of the um, nutrients and trap those nutrients into these islands. In exchange for doing this work that will clean up the lake, they wanna be able to sell land on the islands for development. Yes, I remember this proposal. Aren't some of the islands like shaped like seagulls and stuff too? Like yes. don't they have like an aesthetic an aesthetic component? <laughs> yes, there's a golden spike island, a seagull island, 
And most of the islands are shaped like uh, arches. And there's also, I think, a beehive island. And so this has been one of the more interesting uh, proposals that we've seen in the last few years. And that basically would be dredging of uh, state-owned land for, I mean, how would they sell the islands though? Because wouldn't that, wouldn't that be the bed of the lake? Wouldn't that be state ownership? Would they just be like leasing those islands from the state or would there be a private property interest at all involved or yeah, how so would they see, do what, that? So what they want to do is, and what they're proposing to do, and it's kind of questionable is to clean up the lake. And, and so the benefit to the state and to the public is having a nicer, cleaner lake. And then in exchange for that, they do get title to some of the uh-huh. land. Interesting. And for those who are listeners outside the state of Utah, Utah Lake is a rather shallow lake that is to the south of the Great Salt Lake that um, in the summer struggles with nutrient loading and uh, algal blooms. And so there's a lot of issues. Um, Utah Lake is, um, especially with climate change and increasing temperatures and increasing nutrient loads from um, uh, nearby agriculture and just basically homes and lawns and effluent from treatment plants, algal blooms are a really big issue in August for Utah Lake. So yeah, there is a concern. I mean, that, you know, wanting to clean it up is not an unmerited expedition to explore. Yeah. And um, it's one of the largest freshwater lakes west of the Mississippi and along with Lake Tahoe and, and some others. Oh, I didn't realize that. I mean, it is a pretty big lake. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, Fred, thank you so much for your time today. I think that was a great discussion and hopefully we have kind of put some things for people to think about in terms of sovereign lands and given them a little bit better understanding of kind of what we're talking about when they hear the term sovereign lands. And I just want to say thank you for your time and I hope that we get to talk again. I hope so too. Thanks, Emily. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. If anyone wants to, they're free to contact me as well and I'm happy to talk to them. Nothing said in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. This podcast was produced by Mackenzie Nichols. Find Ripple Effect on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.